Well, I want to start out with a question. Where does confidence come from? Where does confidence come from? Some folks will say that you're born with it. Some folks might say that you inherit that from your parents. Some folks, if you were to look online, would say that there's 10 ways that you can, you can gain confidence. There's actually hundreds, if not thousands, of articles and books that speak to how you can actually gain confidence, how you can live with confidence or live with more confidence. Last week, social media was a buzz about a college football game about Coach Deion Sanders, prime coach. He was coach of the University of Colorado, or is coach of the University of Colorado for their football team, and he brought his confidence to the field with his coaching staff and with his players. And he was quoted saying, don't let my confidence offend your insecurity. Confidence just exudes out of him. He's confident and the last couple games, he's actually had something to back up that confidence. So where does confidence come from? Where does confidence come from for the believer? Those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. Well, the Apostle John, as we wrap up 1 John, his letter, he knows that truth matters. And he's confident in that truth as he writes to the church. So he labors to be clear on the truth of Christ. Throughout his letters, those, he, he wants those who have put their faith in Christ to live with great confidence in the truth because it actually changes how we live. So when we live with confidence in the truth, it actually changes how we live. So here we see John's heart for the church. He teaches that we must put our confidence where it belongs. And that confidence is in Christ alone. So at the beginning of chapter 5, John gives us this threefold testimony of who Jesus is. Again, he's reinforcing our faith in Christ and who Christ is. So he points to Jesus' baptism. He points to Jesus' death. And he points to the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And with each of these, he's affirming and he affirms the teaching of, about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, what he has accomplished. And this, this should cause our faith to be strengthened. So I want to ask you guys to turn with me as I read from 1 John 5. And we finish the, the book that we've journeyed through in and out over the last year. So we're going to end with 1 John 5, verses 13 through 21. If you want to turn there with me. John says, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have before him. If we have if we have asked anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we 
we know that we have what we ask of him. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask, and God will give him give life to him. To those who commit a sin that doesn't lead to death, there is a sin that does lead to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin. And there is a sin that doesn't lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. But the one who is born of God keeps him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God. And the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given, given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one. That is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Well, as John wraps up his letter to the church, he returns to many of the main themes that he's actually covered throughout his letter. And we've actually talked about John is kind of, 1 John is kind of like a spiral staircase where we're hitting the same truths over and over again from different angles, just like we would see different perspectives on a spiral staircase. So the main idea of our passage today is this. Knowing Jesus enables us to live with confidence in salvation, in prayer, and in the truth. I'll say it again. Knowing Jesus enables us to live with confidence in salvation, in prayer, and in truth. And that's actually where, what our outline will be today. So our outline will be that knowing Jesus enables us to one to live with confidence in our salvation. To two, that we would live with confidence in our prayers. And three, that we would live with confidence in the truth. So knowing Jesus enables us to live with confidence in salvation, in prayer, and in truth. And John doesn't want us to boast about our confidence in ourselves. Rather, John wants us to place our confidence where it belongs, in Christ. And as our faith is founded on Christ, from him comes these three kinds of precious confidences that each believer should have. Three kinds of certainties that each believer should have. So the question is, is, is your confidence in the right place? Is it on what you can do or what you can accomplish? Or is it on what Christ has accomplished, what he has done for you? And it's good for us to ask ourselves, where is my confidence? Is it in the right place? Well, John wants us to have confidence in our salvation. And he's clear about who and why he's writing. He's writing to the church. In verse 13, John gives us this purpose statement for his letter. He says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants the believers to know with confidence that they have eternal life. 
As we have journeyed through this letter, John has given us tests so that we may know uh, that we have salvation through Christ. So the apostle is the same apostle that has actually written the gospel of John. So in John 20, verse, 30, uh, verse 31, he explains why he wrote that gospel in the first place. He says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so the gospel of John was written to share the testimony of Jesus so that unbelievers, so that those who do not have faith in Christ, would receive the good news of Christ and that they would believe. So if you are here today and maybe even unsure if you have faith in Christ, that would be a wonderful place to start is in the gospel of John. It's a wonderful place to start by reading because John wrote so that those who would read the testimony of God would believe Christ and have life in him and faith in him. But the letter of 1 John, which we are in right now, the letter of 1 John was written so that those who believe would have assurance of their faith in Christ. So John's desire in his letter is that those who have believed, who have put their faith in Christ, that they would know what they have received. He wants them to know with confidence. So how do we know our faith is genuine, saving faith and that we have eternal life? Well, John says right there in verse 13, he says that I've written these things. So what are the things that, G that John is referring to? Well, John is point, pointing back to what he has written so far. John is pointing back to these tests that he has given us as believers in the church. And they are to help determine if we truly believe, if we truly have faith in Christ. And these tests are a theological test. So asking the question of ourselves, do we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and do we trust in him for eternal life. He has given us this moral test that asking ourselves, are, are we obeying God's commands in not just one area of life, but in all areas of life? And he's also given us this relational test. Are we loving one another the way that God has loved us? And so John revisits these tests again and again throughout his letter and maybe you're here today and you think that you have saving faith, but how do you know? Well, you know by applying these tests to your life, by working through them and seeing the fruit that comes from genuine faith in Christ in each of these areas. Because we will, as the Spirit is at work in us, we will have fruit that comes up out of our life. It's not a maybe, it's a, it's, a, it's a guarantee that if you are a believer in Christ and he is at work in you, these things will come up. You will bear fruit. And so we know by applying these tests and seeing the fruit that is genuine, a faith that believes in Jesus, we will see faith that enables us to obey God's commands and a faith that enables us to love one another. So if you are in Christ, John wants you to know so that you can be sure. 
But better yet, God does not want you living with uncertainty. He wants you to live with such certainty, such confidence, that it will actually affect how you live, how you pray, and how you trust him. So when John says to his readers, that you may know, John is saying that we do not need to doubt. When we put our faith in Christ, we can live with confidence that comes with eternal life through Christ. So the, gospel, the goal of these tests is to give us confidence that Christ is actually at work in our life. It's not to build up a false confidence, but it's to, to show us how the Spirit is at work. Because the Spirit is eager to grant not only you the gift of salvation, but an unshakable certainty that we have received salvation. You see, confidence of salvation is the fruit. It's actually the fruit of faith in Christ. Christ is the one doing the work in your life. Although we are living, it is Christ through us that is bearing this fruit. And Christ saves all who come to faith in him. And so the act of faith continues with this seed of confidence. It grows. So there's no other alternative route to confidence in salvation. Faith in Christ always precedes faith, assurance of faith. Let me say that again. Faith in Christ always precedes assurance of faith. So in the gospel, in gospel assurance, Christ is central. Christ, he is everything. So where do you stand? Do you stand on the side of certainty, confident of the salvation that you have received and that Christ gives? Or do you stand on the side of uncertainty? Charles Spurgeon says, it this way, I can understand a man doubting whether he is truly converted or not, but I cannot understand his apathy in resting quietly by as he has solved the riddle. So, brother and sister, if you are uncertain, man, turn to Christ and know that with him, with faith in him, comes assurance. So our confidence matters. And the Christian that lives with confidence that he or she has eternal life through Christ will live differently. We will actually live boldly, which brings us to our next point, confidence in prayer. And we really see this unpacked in verses 14 through 17. John moves to the second confidence that a believer, in, that a believer enjoys because he knows that Confidence in our salvation will always overflow into confidence in our prayer life. So confidence in our, our, our salvation in Christ will always overflow into our prayers. John says it this way, this is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. This is the second time that John actually, in his letter, speaks to uh, approaching God with confidence. We see the first time in 1 John 2, 28, 
where we see that we can actually have confidence in his second coming. But praise God that we don't have to wait for that day, but rather we can approach God with confidence here and now. Hebrews 4.16 says it this way, Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So if we could not draw near to God with confidence on account of Christ's work, then really the Christian life, our life would be hopeless. We would not dare to enter God's presence without Christ. If we did not know Jesus as the one who John says is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, the only way that we have access to God is through Christ, is through faith in Christ. So understand that the sole basis by which you have access to the presence of God is by the death of his own son, Jesus. He died and bore our sins, not only for those sins that we have committed in the past, committed today, and will commit, but he died and rose and great and rose from the grave, conquering sin and death, so that we can rest in him in faith. And through we have no other access except through Christ's work. John says he is our advocate. He's the only reason that we can go before the Father. This is one of the reasons why even as we pray that we end our prayers in Jesus' name. This is not just a saying or a tradition or thing that we just do as a church or believer. This is a, it's an admission. It's a confession, a joyful testimony that we have great confidence in the presence of God because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. It is in Jesus' name. That is our basis. It's not our good works that we do. It's not our, uh, it's not our works. It's not our changed life. It's not anything else but Jesus. He is the one through whom we have access. It is not our righteousness. It's not our works, but the power of Christ that we can come before God. And when we have our boldness in prayer will be very much tied to our assurance of salvation. So John wants us to be confident in our prayer, but he doesn't want us to be presumptuous. He doesn't want us to assume anything. And so he says in verse 14, this is the confidence that we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And listen to how he puts it in verse 15. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. John almost asked or mentions it in the, the past tense. Like we've already, had, we've already experienced it. We've already been given that. If we've asked him, we have it. But notice he makes it clear that we're not to just be arrogant in our prayers. We are to always pray according to God's will. So whatever we ask according to God's will, John says, he will hear us. And we will have that, what we have asked for. 
So John wants us to be bold in our prayer. He wants us to be assured in our prayer, but he also wants us to always pray in accordance with God's will. And so he gives us these two if-then statements. He says, if we ask anything according to his will, what is the the then that is implied? Well, he hears us. So the prayers that God delights to answer are the prayers that are in accordance with his will. One pastor, John Stott, says it this way, Prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will to God or bending his will to ours, but the prescribed way to subordinating our will to his. God is not our personal ATM machine that when we need something, we go and just expect it to happen. We can pray according to his will because he has revealed his will through his word. We can pray according to his will only because he has revealed his will through his word. So if we're, going, if we're going to pray in accordance with the will of God, then we need to have our minds and hearts so saturated with the word of God that the prayers that God delights to answer are saturated with the will of God revealed in his word. So he wants us to pray boldly and according to his will. Why? Well, one example, we see even in Matthew 8 in the Lord's Prayer We pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. So Jesus says, when you pray, always pray for God's will to be done. Taking that on the end is not some sort of way that we hedge our bets under our prayer of, of, Lord, your will be done. No, we can pray according to God's will. We can't pray according to God's will until we desire to live his will out actually in our lives. So how do we pray? How do we pray actually according to God's will? Well, there are many ways that we can pray according to God's will. One of the ways that we seek to do that even in our pastoral prayers is that those prayers would be saturated with the word. And so we would let those guide our prayer. Well, I think there are some other examples. Say if, if someone loses their job, to my knowledge, there is no place in Scripture where it tells us to pray for, specifically for a new job. But that doesn't mean we can't pray for a new job. Jesus gives us examples of praying for needs. He actually says, give us this day our daily bread. That is a perfect example of praying for our needs, our media needs. But our prayers should be more than that. An example would be if, you know, someone loses their job or if you've lost your job, we could pray something like Psalm 55, 22, where it says, cast your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. Well, what does a prayer look like that prays that? Well, we could pray that we would find rest in the sustaining grace, even in the face of uncertainty. Or maybe it's Matthew 6, 3, 
where it says, don't worry about anything. What will, or say, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? Your heavenly Father knows your needs, but seek first the kingdom of heaven, and all these things will be provided for you. Well, so what does a prayer like that look like? Lord, you have, you have told us that you know our physical needs. You have told us that if we seek you first, then you will provide all that we need. So we ask that you would provide a job. Take care of our physical needs as we honor you with our life. It's a prayer that we can pray that is not specifically answering, but it's, it's changing our hearts. Other examples of praying God's will would be praying that Jesus would be glorified and that we would be conformed to his image. Praying that God's will, God's will is that the gospel would be preached in all the world. These are just a few examples that we see in the New Testament of praying God's will. So if you're learning how to pray, if you're a new believer, let me encourage you to pray, even if you've been a believer for a long time, pray with your Bible open and pray according to God's will. When we do this, our prayers will begin to change. That doesn't mean that we will stop asking God for a specific outcome. Our prayers will have less to do with our circumstances and more to do with the attitudes of our hearts. So pray God's will. In verse 15, John says, And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. So this is that second if-then statement that John makes. If we know God hears, then what? We know that we have what we ask. You see, the assurance of salvation and the confidence in prayer that we enjoy should not lead us with the preoccupation of ourselves, but should always cause us to love and care for the brothers and sisters around us. So John moves in from praying for ourselves to praying for one another. And this makes total sense because throughout the letter, John tells us that if you are a believer, you are going to love and care for other believers. And this is one of the greatest, greatest ways that we can care for one another is by actually praying for one another, for interceding as we intercede for one another. In verse 16, it says, if anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that does not lead to death, he should ask God and God will give him life. To those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death, there is sin that does lead to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin that doesn't lead to death. Man, good old John, he, 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 sometimes he makes you do a second take and, and having to read it again, even if to make sure we have a good understanding. But I think, and even throughout church history, this passage has been confused and misunderstood. And so I, I think when we approach this, obviously we have to do it humbly, but this has been interpreted different ways throughout church history. But I don't think here that John is speaking to a particular sin. As we think about 
these two clear statements that John makes. He says there's a sin that does not lead to death, which he actually states two times in this passage. And then there is a sin that does lead to death. So the death here that John is speaking to is not a physical death. That was decided long ago in Genesis as Adam was in the garden. Hebrews 9, 27 tells us that we are all destined to die once. This is speaking about eternal, spiritual death. So we should be reminded that sin leads to spiritual death. Good example, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Even John in this verse, verse 17, it says, all unrighteousness is sin, which is a great definition of sin. So the sin that does not lead to death is any sin that a Christian commits, but by grace they confess and repent. So the sin that does not lead to death is any sin that a Christian commits, but by grace they confess and repent. Their sin is forgiven by the blood, by Christ, through his blood. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John does not specify any particular sin, but we should know that if we confess, if you agree with God that you have sinned, you will be forgiven. So what do we do? As, as Christians, we humbly confess to God, we will, by God's grace, be forgiven. John 5.24 says, Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. So as we consider the sin that does not lead to death, it's easy for us to even miss what John is instructing here. What, he, what does he say? He says, If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin, that doesn't lead to death, he should ask and God will give him life. Well, John tells us that if we see a believer in sin, if we see them, which even implies that we're living in community with other believers, then the best way to deal with that is to pray. So the best way to deal with sin in a congregation and to, in a believer's life is to pray. John knows that the church is made up of sinners. He tells that if we see a fellow believer in sin, that we should pray and be confident that God will answer that prayer. So pray and trust that the same spirit that is at work in your life is at work in the brothers and sisters around you. Pray for one another. You will often hear Trey or myself hold up a picture of the member directory and say that this is, this is one of the, the most helpful tools is not just for phone numbers, although that can be helpful, but is a helpful list to praying for your brothers and sisters here at OBC. Our desire is that we would be in prayer for one another, praying and that you would be encouraged to know that once a month 
or maybe every day of the, of the month, there is someone here in the body of OBC that is praying for you, praying that you would, would fight sin, that you would battle against sin, and that you would live a life committed to Christ in holiness. So when we repent and trust Christ, praise God that our sin does not lead to death. And we can have confidence about that. But John says there is a sin that does lead to death. Remember that John, I think it's helpful to remember the context, that John is addressing the situation of church members actually leaving the church in abandoning sound doctrine. They're rejecting Christ and that he was God in the flesh. We even see this right before our passage in uh, 1 John 5, verse 12, where it says, The one who has the Son has life, but the one who does not have the Son does not have life. And even in 1 John 2.19, it's talking about those who are leaving the church, denying sound doctrine. He says they went out from us, but they did not belong to us. I love how one pastor says it when he's speaking to the, the sin that does lead to death. He says it this way. The sin that leads to death is the deliberate, open-eyed rejection of known truth. It's the rejection of who Christ is. So having forsaken Christ, they now have no advocate before the Father, no forgiveness of sins. It leads to death because by rejecting Christ, the only means of forgiveness, he is the only means. Christ is the only means to salvation and forgiveness of sins. And so if you reject Christ, that leads to death. So what kind of sins characterize a non-Christian's life? Well, I think we can actually take the test that we have seen time and time again throughout 1 John, and we can even apply it there. So a fail, one of those may be a failure to believe in Christ. That leads to death. A failure to obey his commands. A failure to love other people. These are the things that characterize a non-Christian's life and always lead to death. The funny thing is, is that though these are the same things that, these are the same exact things that we as believers struggle with every day. We struggle to believe sometimes the truth of the gospel at work in our lives. We struggle to obey the commands of Christ. We struggle to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. But the difference the difference is that the Christian struggle, although it does not lead to death, we are not characterized by our failures. Rather, we are characterized by a life of repentance and faith in Christ. So as we pray, we can pray with confidence that God will answer and will keep our brothers and sisters in Christ because he is at work in them just as he is at work in us. So knowing Christ, it enables us to live with confidence and salvation, prayer, 
And our last point leads us to, to, enables us to live with confidence in the truth. Well, what is truth? Well, we heard Tim read a passage from John, the Gospel of John earlier. The Gospel is true, and we can have confidence that we know the one true God. John says in, in verse 18, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under, under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding so that we might know the true one. We are in the true one. That is his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Well, John ends his letter the way that he began. He begins and ends by talking about Christ and who he is. He ends by talking about Christ. So when we are born of God, we can be confident because Jesus keeps us. As believers, the spirit that enables us to obey God's command, this is one of the tests that John mentions earlier in chapter 2, we will know that we are saved if we keep his commands. We will not be under the sway of the evil one because we are of God. We are born again into a new birth that results in a new behavior. So though we slip into sin on occasion and we struggle with the battle of sin, believers will not persist in sin. One pastor says it this way, believers and sin may occasionally meet, but they cannot live in harmony together. Because Jesus is the true God in us. He has given us understanding to recognize the reality of who he is. We heard, as Tim read earlier, who God is, the true Son of God. So he has given us this understanding. And it is not in our own wisdom that we can discern the truth of God, but that God has revealed us. He has given us understanding to recognize the reality of who he is. It is not in our wisdom that we can discern that truth. It is by the work of Christ that he has opened our eyes that we might know him, know the truth. And it is by grace that we are saved because we once were under the power of the evil one, but Jesus has given us understanding of the truth. So what is truth? Well, the truth is that Jesus, the Son of God, came into this world and lived a life of total obedience to God. He lived the life that we as sinners could never live because sin, we are in sin and live under the sway, as John says it, the sway of the evil one. He died on the cross, taking our punishment that we deserve for our sin. And he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death once for all so that those who put their faith in him and believe that 
He has defeated the power of sin in his resurrection. This is how we know we are able to have a new birth. We have been forgiven of our sin, and we can fight against sin. This is the truth that John is referring to. So we can have confidence because what Christ, we can have confidence in the truth because Christ is the truth. Christ is the truth. In verse 20, John uses the word true to describe Jesus three times. John is telling us that Jesus is the true, genuine, real God. And we can hold fast that confession because he will hold fast to us. So there is one true God, and you can be confident in him. But there are also false gods. And those are in front of us all the time. And John warns us in verse 21, and he says, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. John ends his letter this way because he wants his readers to know that they are the ones that know the truth, so don't settle for anything less. Devotion to God is the only right response to Christ-centered certainty. So when we have Jesus, then we have found true life. So we don't need to look anywhere else. Our confidence can be squarely focused on Jesus. So what does your life say about Jesus? Does your life display confidence in your salvation? Does it display confidence in prayer and confidence in the truth? Or are you distracted by the idols that are all around us in this world? Brothers and sisters, we can have confidence in our salvation, prayer, and in truth only because our confidence is in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray and we confess that we are easily distracted by all the idols and temptations and things around us. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to live our lives with confidence not with a false confidence in ourselves, but with the confidence that only comes through faith in Christ. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to apply some of these tests that John has given us to our life, to know, to be certain, to, to know that we can have confidence in Christ and that you are at work in our life. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.